What has 1517 got to do with 2017, 500 years ago? Specifically, what is a church door in a small town in Germany to do with a church door in a small city in Ireland? Uh, is there any relevance? Is there any connection? What is the Castle Church Wittenberg, where Luther nailed his 95 theses challenging the sale of indulgences, the idea that you could buy pardon for sin for yourself or for others? What has that got to do with Windsor Baptist Church, Belfast? Um, well, we're looking tonight at Sola Fide, one of the five alones, if you like, of the Reformation. So, Scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, we heard from Paul last week, faith alone, and for God's glory alone. And Sola Fide, or faith alone, what I want to look at more specifically tonight is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So that's the theme of tonight's service, justification by faith alone. You're thinking, you're throwing too many words at me already, Nigel. Don't worry about it. That's the end of the Latin. David said he had the cold shivers every time he sees Latin because he remembers his teacher. Um, but justification by faith alone. And what has it to do with us? Well, I'm sure you all read the church constitution before you came out tonight, and you all know that Article 7 of our constitution says that the justification of the sinner through faith in the risen Christ is what we affirm and what we believe. So there is a direct connection between what Luther affirmed, justification by faith alone, and what we affirm tonight in our constitution in Windsor Baptist Church. So what about Luther? Well, we heard a little bit from Paul last week. There he is, 1483 to 1546, fine figure of a man. I was asked whether I was going to dress up in period costume for this tonight. I declined, don't know why. Um, Luther was a man who was studying to be a lawyer. He was an intensely spiritual guy. He was seeking peace with God. And then in 1505, he was caught in this vicious thunderstorm, struck by lightning, or almost struck by lightning. He thought he was going to die. He cried out, St. Anne, patron saint of miners, his father was a miner, help me. I will become a monk. And that's what he did, much, it may be said, to his father's annoyance because he wanted a, a better career for him. So he did. And Luther became one of the most pious monks of his order and of his day. He strove through prayer, fasting, penance, physical punishment, and hours upon hours of confession to get himself in a position of forgiveness before God. The theology of the church said that sins could be forgiven by these acts, so he went into overdrive trying to confess everything he could remember. While other monks took five to ten minutes, but like ourselves, Luther took hours. And Paul reminded us that his superior was absolutely frustrated with him. Why don't you go and do something worth confessing, he said. Stop coming to me with such flumery. What's flumery? We all know it's insincerity. Stop coming with such flumery and fake sins. Luther was absolutely frustrated in himself. He could find no peace of mind. And he kept coming back to that phrase that we read tonight in Romans 
chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. Luther understood that to mean that God was righteous, which is true, and he employed that righteousness to reward those who were obedient and punish those who were sinners. God was righteous, and he had to punish sinners. But how could he, who was a sinner, possibly conceive of that as the gospel, as good news? How could, he couldn't get his head around that. There's no good news here, Luther said. It's all bad news for me. God is punishing him. To him, he looked at God and saw an angry God. The church taught that you needed to have faith, yes, plus your own works. And Luther was working hard to justify himself before God, but his efforts were failing. So how would the troubled Luther ever find peace with God? But the light began to dawn. And first he started to realize that the problem is primarily a relational problem. You see, if you go on further in that passage in Romans 1, you read that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Problem is primarily that of godliness. It's between us and God, and then secondly, between us and each other. Luther was good at confessing his sins, but he wasn't good at trying to work out how he could actually restore his relationship with God. Verses 21 and 24 say, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart. And that's what was happening to Luther. He was given over to the sinful desires of his heart. He was quick to confess his sins, repent, do penance, but he wasn't looking to the root and center of his problem, which was his distance from God himself. He was trying to rectify the visible effects of his sin and not the root cause. The problem was his sinfulness, not just the sins he committed. His rebellion against God was the issue. And we must all follow Luther tonight. We must come to the realization that we're separated from God himself. And the first step is to be put back into a right relationship with him. Remember how King David prayed in the Old Testament when he sinned terribly? He said, against you, he said to God, and you only have I sinned. What about you tonight? Do you acknowledge your broken relationship with God? Have you done that? Or are you like Luther, tinkering around the edge, unable to find peace? The second thing that Luther discovered was that people are powerless. Luther realized that he actually couldn't do anything to rectify this problem, no matter how hard he tried. He said, if anyone would feel the greatness of sin, he would not be able to go on living another moment. So great is the power of sin. You get a picture of this man just overwhelmed by the situation that he found himself in. He tried everything. He could not alienate, he could not address this alienation from God. And so us all. I mean, if we are honest, we try to bring ourselves and put ourselves right before God, don't we? And maybe we even think we haven't really done anything 
particularly wrong. I try my best. We might even consider ourselves a good person. But as Luther found out, our best, whatever it is, we may pale into insignificance compared to Luther, but our best is not good enough for a holy God. Do you feel the depth and profound seriousness of your sin? Romans 3.23, which we read, says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Old Testament, Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. So are you, like Luther, ready to acknowledge your own powerlessness to go God's way? So Luther was stuck, to use a theological term. He didn't know which way to go, where to turn, what to do. So what was he going to do? What could he do? He kept coming back to chapter 1, verse 17 of Romans. For in the gospel, good news, the gospel's good news, the righteousness of God, and the righteousness of God to him was God's wrath, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So what was his big breakthrough? What did he see? How did he discover good news? Well, the, the breakthrough came when Luther had access to Romans in the Greek translation. And as he read on from chapter 1 of Romans, in the chapter 3, he started to read Romans 3, 23 and 24, where it says, All have sinned, and then it says, All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. He was using Latin. And the Latin Bible translated justified as to make righteous. So the idea that was taught was that it was a process. You had faith, but you also needed to do your best. So with determination and the means of grace, there could be a good outcome. However, when Luther consulted the original Greek, the meaning was quite different. He discovered that justify was translated as to declare righteous. This was something altogether different. This was a legal term. This was a judge making a declaration saying, you are righteous. It's not go and become righteous. It's not I'm going to make you righteous. It's you are righteous. So Romans 3, 23 and 24 reads, For all have sinned, no doubt about that, Luther thought, and falls short of the glory of God. He agreed with that. And all are justified, declared righteous. How? Freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So Luther began to see the righteousness of God as a gift from God. Not as something which was terrifying, something which was going to destroy him, but as something which God offered freely as a gift to those who wished to accept it. The righteousness of God is not an attribute of God that stands over and against humankind, judging us on the basis of merit. It's the gift of God by which God declares us righteous, even though we and ourselves are not righteous. So the good news is that there's a powerful remedy to our sin and alienation from God. And the solution is provided by God himself through Jesus Christ, 
God is the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So again, where are you looking for the solution to your alienation from God? Are you looking to your own merits, as Luther was, or are you looking to the Lord Jesus? So, but how can you appropriate this wonderful gift, this gift which is freely offered? How did Luther appropriate it? How did Luther change from someone who was distraught to someone who rejoiced? And as David reminded us, brought in communal hymn singing to express his thankfulness to God. Well, what he discovered, what the solution is free? The answer is that he acquired this by faith, by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which David read earlier, explains it better than I could. It says, for as by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Luther realized that in fact he could not and must not do anything but simply accept what God had already done through Jesus on the cross. So it was by faith alone. Nothing to add, or it wouldn't be faith. We ask for forgiveness based not on what we have done, but on what Christ has already accomplished on the cross. And again, the application for us is straightforward. Have we turned from self-help, self-improvement, and acknowledge that no works of any kind can save us. Only what Christ has done, and therefore you need to accept the offer freely. Luther said the following. He said, if faith is not without all, even the smallest works, it does not justify. Indeed, it isn't even faith. John Stott said, it's vital to affirm there is nothing meritorious about faith. And that when we say that salvation is by faith, not by works, we're not substituting one kind of merit for another faith. Nor is salvation a sort of cooperative enterprise between God and us in which he contributes the cross and we contribute faith. No, the value of faith is not to be found in itself, but entirely and exclusively in its object, namely Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I love the way that Stott says that faith is the eye that looks to him, the hand that receives his free gift, and the mouth that drinks the living water. I think it's a lovely way he has to express it. And what Luther discovered, as well as the solution being powerful, because people are powerless, and the solution being free, grace, faith is free. The, prob the problem has a solution which also is relational. Two things, well, at least two things happen when we are justified freely by his grace. The first is that God now sees us not as sinful, but as righteous in his eyes. He reckons us. That's what Luther discovered in the Greek translation of justify. He reckons us, declares us righteous. He acquits us. Justification is about my status before God. No longer am I separated from God. In fact, I have received Christ's righteousness, and I am considered righteous in God's eyes. And as well as that, 
we are now adopted into God's family, so we are children of God. Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So we're in proper relationship with Almighty God. And the question again is, are you? Have you received the free gift that God offers through Christ and His death on the cross? Are you righteous in His sight? Has He declared you righteous because of what Christ has done? Are you part of His family because of what Christ has done? Justification by faith alone challenges us to trust Christ and nothing else. Many of you tonight here are followers of Jesus already, and justification by faith is of enormous benefit and has huge implications for us as believers as well. So let me touch on four of those very briefly as I close tonight. The first thing I want to say about justification by faith for us as believers is that it reminds us, I've been saying this a number of times, repeating it tonight, but I'll say it again, it reminds us that it's only through Christ's death and the resurrection that we can be made right and declared righteous with God. That is the only way to God. No amount of working on our part. And Luther proved the point par excellence. No amount of working can ever justify us. So if you are a believer, you are so by Christ's efforts, not by your own. Secondly, it explains us. What I mean by that? Well, the reality is that we all struggle with sin, if you're like me. We're justified freely by grace, but we sin. And even though we sin, we are still seen as righteous in God's eyes. Our sin no longer condemns us. Romans 8.1 says the following, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That raises a problem. It doesn't mean that sin is trivial or unimportant or something to be indulged in. Remember Paul says, what shall we say then? Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Paul says, God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer in then? Saving faith always is followed by acts and works of faith. Saving faith will always be active in love. Otherwise, as James says, it's not saving faith. And this love, as is expressed in religious duties, not to earn merit, but in practical service of one's neighbor. So it reminds us of who we are in Christ. It explains us that we're righteous in God's eyes, and yet we still sin. But it assures us because justification is an act of God and because it's based on the finished work of Christ, we can have assurance. Justification is future in orientation. It's looking to the future. It is acquittal on the day of judgment. God the righteous will say, I don't look at you, Nigel. I look at Christ and what he has done for you. But justification is the assurance in the present that the final verdict will be in our favor. And I think that's so helpful, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, my experience, my observation of others, we can so easily question 
and even doubt our, our salvation. We sin. And we say, well, are we really Christians? Are my sins forgiven? I fall and I fail so often. Am I really justified? I don't feel it. I don't experience it. Over against that, Paul says in Romans 8.30, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, declared righteous, he also glorified. There's no doubt in, those, in that passage, in those verses. So when all else shouts doubt and uncertainty, remember the God who justifies. He shouts back, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Absolutely nothing. So justification by faith alone reminds us, explains us, it assures us, and I think wonderfully it unites us why are most of us here, maybe all of us here tonight, why do we bother? Why do we come to church? Why do we express our praise together? Why do we fellowship together? It's because being justified, we're united to God through Christ. We become His children, and therefore members of the same family. In our relationships with each other in the church, we must therefore accept each other. Put it like this, if God has accepted me, what right have I to refuse fellowship to someone else who is equally accepted? We all have the same standing before God in Christ. So relationships in the body of Christ depend not on individual preferences, but on God, on what God in Christ has done. So with Paul we say, 1 Corinthians 12, 25, there should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. What concern do we have for each other? How do we express that? Not just for our friendship group, not just for our family, but for all the body of Christ who meet locally in this place as a starting point. How do we express our unity together? So justification by faith alone is important. So what has Wittenberg got to do with Windsor Baptist Church? Well, as a result of his understanding of justification by faith, Luther nailed his theses to the door, and we could run out tonight, get our constitution, and nail it to the door, and affirm again, Article 7, that it's the justification, through the sinner, justification of the sinner through faith in the risen Christ is what we affirm tonight. And to finish, uh, a recent author says this. He says, no other doctrine other than justification by faith alone, so illustrates the sinfulness of man and the futility of his efforts to save himself. No other doctrine so glorifies Christ as the sole ground of our salvation. No other doctrine so establishes the security of the believer in Christ. Hence, no other doctrine is so vital to biblical preaching and effective ministry. It's absolutely foundational, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. Why? Well, Romans 3, again, 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came 
by Christ Jesus.